Hey everyone, welcome back to the Anagram Journey. Today, Suzanne's guest is Brian Irwin and Anagram 3. One of the questions that really stood out for me was when she asked, how do we measure the value of what we're doing if we're not going to use a cultural measure? If you are interested in hearing Suzanne speak live, she'll be teaching in Kansas City later in the month, and in September she'll be teaching both in Los Angeles and Richmond, Virginia. You can find all of her upcoming schedule at SuzanneStabile.com. And if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, there's a new Path Between Us small group starting up September 18th. You can get more information and register for that at LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com. We sure hope you enjoy the show. Hey, I'm here with Brian Irwin. Um, Let me tell you how I first encountered him. Some guy walked into my Sunday school class one Sunday morning with a guest preacher who was there for the day because Joe was out of town. And I thought he was with the guest preacher. So I introduced myself to them <laughs> and I said, so uh, are you guys go to the same church? Or And uh, the, you didn't know him. Like y'all had met Not at all. that moment, just right that then. moment. And um, I knew right then that we were going to be friends. Right that minute. So how about you? Did you think, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no, I knew before that. Or I wouldn't have showed up in your class. I oh, think. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think listening to your teaching before that um, just had an intuition about kind of who I thought you might be. And then when that bore itself out in about 30 seconds that day, I was like, yeah, okay, this is it. Let's talk about what in the Enneagram made you want to know more enough that you would just walk into a Sunday school class, take a seat. And... Wow. Um, well, my introduction to the Enneagram was after a period of pretty significant failure for me. and Everybody needs to know you're a three. I'm a three. I'm a three on the Enneagram. And, uh, it was, a probably about a year after that happened that I was introduced to the Enneagram and I was captivated by the fact that it, it was showing me parts of myself that I had seen pieces of, and it felt real about who I really was and that I wasn't reduced to being only what I do. And oh. I had felt so much like that for really all of my life until that point that I really was what I do. And so my identity was defined by my work. My identity was defined by my accomplishments. My identity was defined by how well I did X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a sneak peek to see, yeah, that's not really all you are. So that was probably the underlying hook for me. I didn't like most of what I was learning because it was horrible (laughs) on some level, but it was the hook to get me to want to know more because it showed me something bigger and better. I've always wondered about when threes hear the Enneagram for the first time, because most of the time, you know, they don't self-identify in the room when I'm teaching. And I, I know there's pushback, but because you can be whatever people want you to be, I kind of have begun in the last few years to wonder if when you first hear it, you have to think about it a little while to think about whether or not that's you. 
took because, me months. Yeah, because it's like, well, I do that when it doesn't cost me anything, and I do that if it doesn't mess up the room, and I do that if it's okay with the people I'm with. So I would think it would be a tricky journey to, yeah, I am a three. So I've kind of gotten to a place where I expect a little less immediacy from threes when they're first learning the Enneagram. Yeah, I'm not sure that I would trust it if I thought I knew it immediately. Because mm-hmm. when it's that quick for me, a lot of things are quick for me like that. Like uh, information can be quick, pretty quickly assimilated. Which doesn't make it not true or right, but it it often means that I'm speeding ahead of where everyone else is at that point to kind of get to the answer. And I may not be paying close enough attention. All that to say, I think that I know myself well enough that I tend not to trust my immediate instinct quite like I used to. There are um, about five or six people in the country where I teach on a regular basis, who get mad at me while I'm teaching, and you're one of them. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) it's the craziest thing to be just teaching along, offering the very best that I have to offer. You know, one of the six uh, from the back row just flips me off. It's like, and sometimes you'll go, oh. (laughs) Um, Interestingly enough, over the years, that's uh, gotten to be kind of comforting to me. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think it is about the Enneagram that, that gets you in a way that in real time it makes you kind of mad at the messenger? I think because it's so on point about the things that I don't necessarily want anyone to know about me. It's like instant vulnerability is how it feels to me in front of however many people are in that room. And I do not like it. I know it's good for me to know that. I do. I almost believe that. (laughs) (laughs) Almost is a good word there. So do you think you're reactive because you don't want anybody to know and I know? Or do you think you're reactive because I know and I told everybody else? I think the latter. I yeah. think it's that you know and you've told everyone else. And there's no way that I can clean that up. I can't yeah. make that shiny and pretty. Yeah, yeah. So. I was at a funeral home one time with a friend whose father had died. And her sister was there, somewhat estranged. And um, the friend had suggested that her sister might be a three. She didn't know for sure. And um, at the end of the evening where people came to the funeral home to visit and pay their respects, you know, there's a body there. And um, she came up to me and said, um, it was nice to meet you. And I said, well, it was very nice to meet you. And she said, did my star shine pretty tonight? (laughs) I thought, my, my. Yeah, yes, it did. And, you know, you could get real judgmental about that. Or you could think, my goodness, how hard it must be to be a three in the world where you have to make sure that you're doing even grieving in a way that shines. It's interesting that you tell a story about a funeral. Uh, When my father died, uh, 
and it probably took the Enneagram for me to remember this story correctly. Um, my siblings and I were sitting around on the back deck at my parents' house and you have a bunch of them, bunch of them. Yeah. I'm the youngest of seven. So there's a lot of us and it was just the seven kids talking about funeral stuff and whatever. But I remember thinking, I'm not sure I know what I'm supposed to do now. Like how I was supposed to act or whether I was supposed to be crying when I was supposed to be crying. Like it was, I had very specific thoughts about how to be in that moment, which I sort of was irritated at myself later for like, why couldn't I just be grieving? But I really didn't know because I, I needed the feedback from everyone else to know what I'm supposed to do here. Um, and so in that way, that sort of is sad because it's, I wasn't grieving in real time at all. Yeah. Um, and I was just setting aside all of my million emotions and feelings about the day. I can't begin to imagine needing to be successful at everything. Right. Like I, I really get that that's true for threes and I can't even, I can't even imagine it. I really liked what you said a second ago that it took the Enneagram to remember the story correctly. And I think that's something that gets overlooked when people start doing Enneagram work. But I think we forget to reflect on, hang on, what really happened last week? What really happened a year ago? Or 10 years ago. Well, I would say that's one of the great gifts to me of Enneagram work is to be cognizant of the past um, as well as the present. But but the, the world isn't always happening out in front. And that for those of us who are threes and who quite literally set to the side our feelings in a moment it really is imperative for us to look to the past and re re reexamine those things, not just to learn about how to do it better in the future, but I think it's a healing or it has been for me anyway, real healing inside myself to see, to see what occurred really, really not just through my lens of efficient, successful, good doing of whatever it is. Is that something that you have always done? Because threes seem to me are always such forward thinkers. I think probably some therapy has helped with that, but I really wouldn't say I ever did any of that significantly until I learned the Enneagram and, and, and began to, it got to a point where I could do that without it being a, um, a blaming kind of thing where it was more about, allowing myself to be vulnerable at those moments in my own history and vulnerable to myself and see myself as someone who had a struggle or difficulty that was real. And I didn't, even though I tried to make it look easy and good and like I was just going through the day and everything was fine. I just think, you know, when the, the truth will set you free and, that includes the truth of your history and not Amen. just your memory of it, but the truth of it. Yep. Looking back and just looking for understanding and not blame. 
and just trying to understand it better right without placing any blame and then it just completely changes the trajectory of the future man i i've been wondering whether or not sibling issues have everything to do with Enneagram number and very little to do with what really happened. I would say that that's so, so true. Um, in, in my family, you know, we, we have in the siblings where we don't have a five and we don't have a six, but our father was a six. And, um, but you can see the clear difference between how the stances interact for sure. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think if, not that we could have known this as kids, but knowing it now as adults, I always say, not all of us, but those of us who do, it certainly opened the door to some more compassionate understanding. Mm -hmm. And acceptance. And acceptance. Yeah. I, I think the lack of acceptance that we have for other people has so much to do with a lack of understanding how they see and how they process what they see. I, I, um, I just, you know, I grew up with my brothers were 18 and 15 years older than me. So the language in our family has always been that we just grew up in two different families because they were essentially gone and I was there. I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, one of them is a nine, one of them is a seven, and I'm a two. And I think it's that we grew up that way that made the difference. I agree with that. I grew up with the, so the first six in my family are sort of a cluster and then me yeah. years later. And so I always grew up with the, um, you know, there's that segment of the family and then I'm kind of the only child. Yeah. And while there is some truth to that, the other real truth to that is, is that I'm an aggressive feeling number and we don't have any others of those yeah. in our family. And, uh, I just interacted with the world differently than they did as a group. So the aggressive numbers in that first set sort of drove a lot of what was happening. Mm -hmm. And, um, I didn't necessarily go by those same rules. Mm -hmm. And so there was some tension created there where there literally are pictures of my siblings holding my arms back because I'm trying to like express something that they're telling me not to in the moment. Yeah. I'm not understanding that because it's not how I see. Right. Right. Um, so I think Enneagram number and sibling relationships is conflict rather is huge. I've never been able to wrap my head around really inner child work. I certainly respect it. And I know a lot of therapists who do it and do it well. And it's very helpful to people. Um, in my times in life of having a therapist, it just doesn't work for me. And I, but the Enneagram does. Yeah. I, I can, I think I can accomplish what they're accomplishing by using my Enneagram wisdom to look at the whole of my life. And I'm kind of finding now that Joe and I have been together, you know, we just 30, we've been married 30 years, which if you don't start till you're 40 and 37, that's a thing to be married 30 years. <laughs> Joe said the other day, we, we could make it 50. <laughs> I said, well, just barely, but we might. <laughs> but I'm, I'm to a point now where I just, so understand his nineness that I just don't have it in me to be angry or frustrated with him 99.9% .9 of the time. I just don't have it in me because I get it. And I've found that it has taken a lot of angst out of my parenting. Parenting adult children 
is very tricky. And mine are working with me. <laughs> so, and I'm just aware that it plays there too. It's like, I, in my head, I get that. And then I don't, I don't have to contribute or address it or make anybody feel bad or better. I just get to let it be what it is. And I'm beginning to think that when we can't let something be what it is, it's because we don't understand it. Not even because we don't like it. It's because we don't understand it. So how old are you? 45. What's it like to be a 45-year-old male, three, in Dallas, Texas? Different than it was as a 35-year-old three in Dallas, Texas. Yeah? What's the um, difference? The difference is that I'm not running the same race. Oh, that's such good language. You know it, too. You're kind of proud of yeah, that. I, yeah, I am yeah that is good, but by it's the way. True. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I don't begrudge the people who are in the race that I'm sure. not in because they don't know any different. Yeah. Um, neither did I. And... Boy, there, there's a race every hour in this city. It's all the too. time. Yeah. I mean, just to come here today, uh -huh. I mean, I, and let me say, it is not that I'm not fully aware that that race is happening. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I know it's there and it's a call that I feel often. Yeah. Um, which is part of why I don't live in the city. Um, but I, I've been gone all week last week. So today at work was really crazy. And, uh, I had the urge to put off this because I needed to work. And so I had this little battle in my brain about it today. And uh, one of the most courageous thing a three can do is leave the office at five o'clock. That's fascinating. And it takes a lot of strength to do it. That's so interesting to me because I was on somebody else's podcast today and uh, she spends a lot of time talking about courage and she asks me where I need courage in my life. And then she asked me to talk about courage in all nine numbers. And man, if I'd had that, that's golden that it's courageous to leave the office at three, which is why so many threes are workaholics. Right. Yeah. That's so good. This seems like a good time to jump in and we've got a question from a listener. From Dana, as a three and a member of the heart triad, I feel a profound sense of shame when I'm not achieving. My mind frequently moves into the future where I can do and achieve more. How can I keep myself more centered in the present and deal effectively with the feelings of shame while avoiding the compulsion to do? Go get them. <laughs> you can answer that way better than I can. Well, Wow, I understand every single thing that she just said. I think this is the Micah Center uh, logo or, or lingo about solitary work that cannot be done alone. And I would say for a three, this is where that really comes in. You, you really need someone who can help you level set when it comes to that sort of angst and shame making experience. So a few weekends ago... I had, I was doing nothing on a Sunday afternoon, which is rare, but I had reorganized some stuff and worked in the yard all day on a Saturday. I, I'd done more in 12 hours than most people would do in a week, not braggingly, but just factually. 
but Saturday afternoon, I was feeling like I hadn't done anything. I hadn't accomplished anything. And I was feeling really bad. And, uh, so my, my partner said, Hey, what's wrong with you? Why are you feeling down? It's like, well, I just haven't got anything done this weekend. And he said, no, I'm not going to listen to that. That's incorrect. So I trust him. I believe what he has to tell me. And he told me the truth, which is, this is what you've done. Da, 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 da. And even if you hadn't done any of those things, you are loved and you are worthy and you get to have a day off. And so I don't know that that's a complete answer to where she's coming from, but I would say having someone in your life that you can trust to tell you the truth when you're living that lie inside your brain about you need to be doing more and you haven't done enough. And because you haven't, then you're not worth anything and that your whole existence is a circle with the zero rubbed out. That's not true. But you can't tell yourself that all the time. You need someone who can, um, or many someones, but at least one. I also, th that that is so countercultural. Yeah. And I think we tend to believe that countercultural messages are about groups of people, but never personal. And that is not true. And I, that's just totally counter to the culture and to who people want you to be. And to who people reward you for being and to who people say you're good because you and all of that. It's fascinating. Well, that's the truth because you, you have to, it's against the tide a hundred percent. People can tell me all they want. You are not what you do, but what they show me over and over and over is you are exactly loved for who you are and for what you do, not just for who you are. Yeah. And, uh, mom, you talk about, for instance, with a one, you can't tell a one right. that they're good. Yeah. So yeah. And everyone seems to get that real easily. And it, there's an easy solution to that, it seems, to be one, grateful for specifics instead mm -hmm. of broad things mm -hmm. and other tools that you shared. So in this scenario with a, a three where, yes, all of our and society's actions and words say you are loved and appreciated for what you do, how can we show and not just say that you're appreciated for who you are. I'll tell you where I, uh, where I get that the most. Um, well, two places, one at home, uh, when something gets done at the house that I didn't ask to be done or have a conversation about, or, uh, so like dry cleaning came in and it, it got put on the hangers and hung up and I had nothing to do with it, but I walked in the closet and it was all done. And it made me feel like I really mattered. And that's sort of a seemingly insignificant kindness, but it had really big feeling for me. The other thing is the woman, a woman that I work with who helps me, who is just tremendously good at what she does. Uh, sort of, I, we may have like a psychic connection where she knows not to ask me at times for things, but when she just does things, well and right and and takes care of stuff before it ever hits my plate it feels not like i just didn't have to do that but like it feels like love to me and it feels like real care i add a third that i think is good for threes and that is to be very steadfast when there's failure 
Threes really, really have a hard time with themselves when they fail to do something the way they meant to or the way they wanted to. And I, I think the idea that people pull back to take care of themselves is sometimes exactly right on and sometimes exactly the wrong thing to do. And I, I think it's a big deal. Well, I think I mentioned to you that there are, I know the difference between pulling back to take care of myself and pulling back to, uh, well, in such a way that it only exacerbates the, the trouble I'm in, right. if you want to call it trouble. And it's a vastly different experience. And I agree that being steadfast in failure, again, which takes a tremendous amount of work to do. Yeah, on both sides. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and not not just big failures. Like no, it's, no. It's, it's little stuff. Sure, sure. I figured this out first by kind of observing myself, and then I began to observe it in other people. And I, I think uh, we're managing anxiety by behaving badly with strangers and by dealing with things that don't matter with the people who are the closest to us. It's like nitpicking. It's like... Um, picking at little stuff. And I decided I was going to stop saying it if I could. Watching myself think that way is just, it's incredibly embarrassing. <laughs> when I'm stressed, then I just find something wrong with what everybody else is doing. And I, I, I tried for a while to say, but that's to help me feel better. I don't think it is. <laughs> I think I'm feeling real good about me, and I just think, you poor people just can't get this. I, I'm really concerned about that in myself. So what do you do when you're just all stressed? Uh, wow. Like the good stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's that. Let's do a both and. Yeah, yeah, a both and. So um, I would say the the thing that I do that's the kindest to myself and that I love is if I would go ride my bicycle. Yeah. It's contemplative mm -hmm. and it's full of energy and it's, um, I just love the doing of it. Or or to work in my yard. Um, not Not just to get the mowing done, but like the actual doing some sort of outdoor work by myself in the quiet um, is good for my insides. It's good for my heart. It's good for my head. Because it, so would, if you were talking with Joe, would you, would you feel good saying, you know, this is really working as a contemplative practice for me, working in the yard and riding my bicycle, because, you know, he would count both. Well, I so he probably would, but I feel like there are plenty of others who probably wouldn't. So I feel like it doesn't exactly measure up to a contemplative practice. But but I know the definition that yeah. we try to use of um, anything that... Uh, Entered into with your whole heart. Yeah, and, that we do. Yeah. With, uh, for all the right reasons. For all the right blah, reasons. Blah, blah. Right, right, yeah. But, and so yeah. in that regard, yes, I do think it would be. Um, Pretty sure we butchered that. Yeah. Just you think? for the record. <laughs> Pretty sure we did, too. Um, okay. <laughs> I was just thinking to talk about the contemplative cohort. So I would guess that you set your standards pretty high for everything in terms 
of how you're doing in the world, including a contemplative practice. Absolutely. And Joe is about to begin a contemplative cohort in 2019. And I feel sure that he would use those two as examples of a contemplative practice. So the question gets to be for you and for all of us, how do we measure the value of what we're doing if we're not going to use a cultural measure? So how do you value yourself and how do you measure your own value without considering what the culture says is great. You know, like, do you have to be a monk to be contemplative? Because I have no hope for you being a monk. Right. I would be a terrible (laughs) monk. Um, Unsuccessful. Unsuccessful as a monk. I am really not successful when it comes to contemplative practice. What's your definition of successful? But my definition of successful would be where I don't look for the reference of what the culture says or what I think it ought to be or how it should appear. Um, and I think that my definition of success means that it has to be private and it isn't something I can talk about. Um, because the second I try to work that in smoothly to a conversation about how you know, blah, 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 contemplation, yeah. man, I got it going. I have two practices. Right, it's over. You know, like sure. it's, and it's not special anymore, but, but that all sounds like that could be doable. The The hard part for me, and I think probably is true for many threes, is the believing that who we are is worth the doing of the contemplative work. Okay. That makes me crazy. So I want you to talk about it some more so I can talk about it some more. Well, I just, the thing is, is that we just don't really value ourselves quite rightly. Um, And it is a thing that I have to constantly remind myself that I have intrinsic value simply because I am. How in the world did we culturally get to a place where nobody believes that? That's not specific to threes. Nobody believes that they have intrinsic value intrinsic value as who they are or that they're really good as who they are. I'm going to jump in here because I disagree a little bit. Okay. You get to. You did a workshop uh, a while back Mm -hmm. and it'll be happening again some point in the next year. Talk about the triads Mm -hmm. as the heart triad and the other name that is hardly ever used is the shame triad. Yeah. And you're a two and you're a three. And I'm a seven, and I think I'm pretty good. Uh, like I, I, that's why I disagree. So you two are sitting there saying, "Yes, none of us feel good about ourselves, and, and think that we're worthy of contemplative practices." And I, I'm all—I don't know that I say others feel no, the same. No, that's what I'm, is, I, I said. It, I'm feeding right. off of yeah. And but. I think he's right. You know, because the other person in the room at the moment is Joe Stabile. I asked him, "Have you ever felt shame?" Like real shame? He said, I don't think so. I feel guilty sometimes. But I, I don't think I feel shame. Boy, I do. Yeah, me too. And we were at a workshop one time and someone asked me, uh, you had called me up the front to talk for uh, about some of my experiences. And they asked about shame. And I kept saying, 
I, I was embarrassed. I knew I had done these things. I had embarrassment. And maybe once or twice in my life, I actually felt shame, but not not on the level that, that you two are speaking of right now. I'm so glad you jumped in because it's so easy to just pick up that everybody's hurting the same way we're hurting, which just one more time diminishes the wisdom of the Enneagram because we don't all hurt the same way. No, and I'm often, I'm amazed when I hear people say like what Joel just yeah. said. Or what Joe said. I'm, yeah. I'm amazed to hear that. And But it's believable. If you know these two human beings, right. then you go, oh, yeah, I can see that. Well, and other people that I know who sure, are, sure. you know, sevens and sixes and nines and eights, and they don't have that experience. Yeah. So just for a quick miniature recap of that, mm -hmm. two, three, four, heart and shame. Yeah. Uh, five, six, seven, head and fear mm -hmm. and then eight nine one gut and anger or rage mm -hmm. and that that secondary description just doesn't get used as much that's true and you know the reason that i stopped using shame instead of feelings with two three and four is because i think everybody is affected by shame so even if you say that you don't feel a lot of shame I think if you like read the book I recommend all the time, which is Kurt Thompson's book, The Soul of Shame, I think if you read that, then you see how shame has affected your life. And I, I think we live in a time when what I'm really hyper aware of because of where I do a lot of my work is the church shaming people to get them to behave a certain way. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start a campaign right now to go back to shame being the, the term used because, and, and seriously correct me, but learning from you, those titles aren't, it's not about how the world is to us. It's how we are behaving in the world. Sure. So two, threes, and fours, they're coming from that place of shame, not how the world is coming to them. So yes, we all experience shame. Yeah, at least once or twice or at some point or shame affects us mm -hmm. and same with fear and same with anger. But the behavior uh, is yeah, because of that. Just correct? Waiting. I think it's just waiting. For right. Us. Like for two, three and fours, it's just right under the surface, just waiting to get you. When I listened to that workshop, I wasn't there live. When I listened to that workshop, it was, it was breathtaking because it's not at all How you my feel? experience. Yeah, that's and yet I can see it, you know, just listening to, to listening to the two of you right now, but also looking at the experience of the twos, threes, and fours in my life over time. Mm -hmm. It's very evident. So um, let's talk a little bit about the fact that you're a gay man. Want to? Sure. Okay. It's tricky. Yeah. Isn't Can't it? Be. To be a three... And to be living in the South and to be very capable of accomplishing a great deal and uh, to be gay. Yep. It's been, been a trip. Do you think it would be easier? And I know you can't answer this for sure, but do you think it's any easier for some numbers to be gay as opposed to others? 
That's interesting. I've actually wondered that. Me too. And it's very tricky because you know that it's so complex. Right. And I think just sort of surface level, um, I think gut folk probably, quote, easier, if I were guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, Here's what I know. I know that because you're in the aggressive stance and because you take in information with feelings, even though you don't let feelings have a big effect on how you're going to respond to that information. I know that you are always a voice in the room for your community. And I know that justice is um, uppermost for you. And that you have gifts for speaking into injustice on behalf of your community. It's very personal. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But do you ever sit back and think, you know, life might just be an easier journey for me if I just don't do that? I have absolutely thought that before. Um, and it would have been, and it would be easier. Um, rightly or wrongly, I grew up in the, uh, to those who much is given, much is required kind of world. Um, and I don't know how not to be the person who steps into those places where, um, others aren't mm-hmm. and it's not that that's the easiest thing for me to do because I have to muster a little something to do it and it costs me quite a bit but I also know that there are a lot of people who can't do that mm-hmm. and won't do that and don't have the privilege to be able to risk whatever there is to risk to do that. So I do it when I have to. And yeah, uh, it's, it'd be easier. My observation of you for the last years is that the more you learn about the Enneagram, the more gentle you are when you step in. And I, I, I think there's this um, myth that there's some place where you arrive with Enneagram wisdom where things just kind of fit and people make sense and all that. And I, <laughs> I, I haven't found that, and I've been using it for a long, long time. But I do believe that the Enneagram increases our capacity for kindness and patience and grace. And I um, think... That if we can speak our understanding of life into communities that don't see things the same way we do, from that place of uh, quiet, we have a better chance of being heard. Unfortunately, that's counter to the culture, too. Right. I was just recently with a group of people I don't know very well, and there was some conversation about 
all sorts of political things, which are of interest to me. And, um, but I listened more than I talked. And finally, at one point in the conversation, there was all this positing of what needs to be done, what needs to be done. And it just occurred to me that we've got to kind of quit playing the short game and we got to quit worrying about all the stuff that's so big and outside of our neighborhood. And until we start dealing with the people that we're in Kroger with mm -hmm. in a way that is loving and understanding and, and really instead of coexisting, communing and creating community, all the rest of it is really not going to change a lot. It's just going to be big banners that change from this color to that. And people are still going to be yelling and hollering at each other. Um, and defining ourselves by what we're against right. instead of by what we're for. Instead of by what we're for. And the upshot of my commentary was a room full of angry people who thought I was kind of wacko crazy at the mm -hmm. moment. I um, am aware from time on college campuses that a, a variety of college campuses that I have young men and women who listen to the podcast and who show up when I teach in different places who um, are members of the LGBTQ community, but who are silent members. And I am over being angry that they feel like they have to be because that didn't help. What would you say to the people in your stance, threes, sevens, and eights, about being young and gay and afraid? That it's okay to be afraid. Um, and that it really does just get better and it gets a little easier. And the onus isn't all yours. It's not all on you. Feels like that. Feels like you're the only one in the world. Even if you know you're not. Mm -hmm. And I would say ask for help. Because it's lonely not having some help. So, so I would say come out. And you come out small. Uh. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be a big thing. Mm -hmm. That's what I'd say. Thank you. All right. So your partner is a seven. Yep. Let's talk about a three and a seven. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lot of aggression. It is. And I would like to know what it's like when you're aggressive with each other. And I'd like to know when what it's like when one of you decides not to be. I'm going to start with this. Okay. It would never work if we didn't both have some Enneagram on board. It just, we just wouldn't have common language. You know, I hear that so much. And I think people who don't know anything about the Enneagram, that's got to be so hard for them to believe. But it's just true. It's just true. In so many instances. So... Arthur can have 400,000 ideas in the span of five minutes. 
I'm immediately trying to figure out the plans to make those ideas start happening, which makes me insane crazy. So that is maybe not me being aggressive, but it's me and my rawest self yeah, doing what I do, him doing what he does. And from that point, the energy can just get bigger and bigger and bigger till when you don't even know what the problem is anymore mm -hmm. because neither one of us is acknowledging our feelings about what's happening with, with what's going on. And so it can just create a powder keg and any spark can blow it up. Um, so after one or two of those, you figure out, I don't really want to do that again. Mm -hmm. So how do we not do that again? And it really only takes one of us to, to pull back. Isn't that fascinating that stopping nonsense lies in the power of one? Yes. Every time. Every time. But, it, but the, the requisite part for the, the other party is acknowledgement mm -hmm. and usually saying, I'm really sorry for whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and not like a fake, I'm sorry, Yeah, but like the real, a, deal. The real thing, um, Again, not the easiest thing to do, but worth every bit of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of am operating out of a theory that when two aggressive people are fighting, it's over faster. You know, I may not have said on the podcast that I'm a real big believer in everybody fights. Every mm -hmm. meaningful relationship that I'm aware of, there's disagreement and some fighting that well, goes on. People close to you will hurt you. It yes, they absolutely will. And you'll hurt them. And you'll hurt them. Yeah. I, I, it scares me a lot when young couples say, we've never had a fight. Joe and I did a young couples class on adulting. We were the speakers. And one of the young women who's recently married in that class said, we've never had a fight. And I thought, ah, you think y'all get through faster like you just get it done? No, I think we could if I didn't have quite a large four wing. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right, talk about that because one of the most complex places on the Enneagram is a three with a big four wing. The other, for people who are listening, is a nine with a big eight wing. So talk to me about that three with a four wing. So the competing interests that show up are the desire not to feel the feeling and the desire to feel the feeling all the way through the center of the earth. <laughs> that's quite a dichotomy. <laughs> See, that's how that feels that's inside it. your body. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, there's an intensity. I bet Arthur's saying, how about we just not feel the feeling? <laughs> but yeah, and there's a little song that he sings about this, <laughs> which is unfortunately very true. But no, we, he, Arthur can get through the, the fight faster than I can. Yeah. Um, because I just can't process it all out. Um, because I just feel like this density to things mm -hmm. that I envy some of my three friends who don't seem to have mm -hmm. that weightiness about things. And it's a, it's a dense is the what the best word I can just use to That's describe it. Somebody I talked to recently is a three with a four wing described it as an unreasonable demand. And that is an excellent way to think about it. Unreasonable to yourself, unreasonable yes. to everyone around you. And even trying to dismiss it 
which doesn't work, somehow winds up being unreasonable. It's yeah, just, sure. Uh, I'll play the role of Arthur here. Does he beg for reason in these? Because I know I, that's what I, when Whitney and I are fighting or me and any of the family are in disagreement. It's like, where, where's the reasoning in this? Yeah, you know, if I get whipped up about something that Joel, that I make up, of course, about what Joel did or said or felt or whatever he'll say. I didn't, who said that? I didn't say that. Well, so the reason And why would I say that? Yeah, and which makes me just want to pop him. There, there is the request for reason, but it doesn't work terribly well because I have an uncanny ability to instantly recall verbatim statements made over the course of long history. Um, That's a gift of our triad right there. And that doesn't often play well when you want to play the reasoning game with me. Because <laughs> I might not play the reasoning game, but I'll play the winning game. So I think that's back to your core three now. <laughs> yeah. That's where that exactly. is. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> yeah. And I also do know, though, when I start trying to win, we're just way off track on yeah. everything. Yeah. It's all messy. and Win, win, and lose, lose. Yeah. Yeah. But the nice thing I think about two aggressive numbers, and maybe this is to your point, is that when I know that, or when he knows it, like we really can't just say, wait, we're, what is this? Yeah. Is this a thing? Mm-hmm. Is there I anything think... better than the reset? When, yeah. When it's like, right. The, the step back and stop and reset and you're like, oh, okay. And the end is in sight then, no matter how long it's been. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, and because you're both willing to be in that thing together, mm-hmm. you can do that. The huge tool or one of the many, uh, sitting down and asking the question of where is the us in this? And that just wipes out everything. You, yeah. You plan things about five minutes ahead after that because you're almost there. <laughs> and in five minutes, or, or, we'll be, be or be in the moment, or be in the moment <laughs> and try it together. I don't know. Bad recovery. Yeah. <laughs> All right, um, I, I uh, have one more set of questions for you that I'm going to give you the overview and then. Okay. What would you tell your 25-year-old self? What would you tell your 35-year-old self? And what do you wish you had known two weeks ago? I would tell my 25-year-old self, stop trying to figure it all out today. And go figure out what it is that you love and do that. Yeah. And do that. Um, I might slap my 35-year-old <laughs> self. That's funny. <laughs> um, I think I would... No, I, I wouldn't. I think what I would say to my 35-year-old self is I would put my arm around me and say... It's a mess and it's okay to say it's a mess. Yeah. And you'll figure it out and you don't have to do it today. Yeah. What do I wish I knew two weeks ago? Um, gosh, that's kind of the hardest one. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I wish I knew this, but maybe I wish I believed this a little more that, uh, what I am experiencing as I get older, um, and I think the Enneagram plays into this great deal, 
I need, I wish I could learn to trust the easiness of some things more than I do. And I don't mean easy, like as in with, without effort, but that I can sort of rest into my life in some ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Settle? Settle, settle a word? Mm, no. Maybe, but it's more about, um, I guess, allowing mm. my life to be instead of um, always trying to steer it. Because mm -hmm. it gets exhausting trying to steer it mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's scary to think about not mm -hmm. on some level. But when I don't, it's often easier. I don't know. Yeah, you know, uh, golly, maybe 15 years ago now, Joe and I began to do a lot of work with Sabbath keeping and decided that we would keep Sabbath. And that's taken on different forms uh, during the 15 years. But one of the things that I was the most taken with is that in the traditional history and understanding of Sabbath keeping, you begin at night and you rest and you go to bed and you sleep. And then I think Eugene Peterson said, and then you just get up the next morning and you find your place in what God is already doing. And I think we all tend to think that we have to get up tomorrow and create something. But I think threes and eights particularly feel that. My relationship at work with uh, some significant people had been quite difficult for me because I was trying to create a place instead of finding the place that I belonged, thinking that I had to create it. Sure. But, but I never bothered to actually stop and think about it mm -hmm. too much. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't working. And so I really tried to be a little more understanding of how this person sees and examine that some more. And what it really took was for me to step into the place that was there instead of trying to create the space that wasn't. Yeah. Which oddly is kind of the same place. It's just that one is paying attention to the feelings and agenda of the other person. There you go. There you go. And I, you know, I teach this and I don't think people pick it up. When I talk about the fact that ones, twos and sixes are thinking repressed and three sevens and eights are feeling repressed and fours, fives and nines are doing repressed. And then, you know, I always say, when you bring up the repressed center, it is the purest part of you. That is so true for me. It's my best, most honest, most helpful thinking comes from when I do that work to create that balance. And I, I think we undervalue what the purity of one of those centers can bring to our life. I agree. I'm excited for what will be. I, um, I'm just more hopeful than I've been in a while. And I think it, nothing really has changed except me. And I've just let go of some things that I think have to happen for the world to be an okay place. And for me to find my place in it. It's like, this is what I've got. So... The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solvay Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. 
We invite you to visit the EnneagramJourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.